Good morning, church family. Thank you. All right. Well, it's good to be here with you all today. If you have your Bible, go to the book of Judges. That's where we will read the scripture today. The book of Judges, chapter 2. Today is part two to our six-week series called Piecing Together the Bible. Really, what the hope I, I have after this is that we all kind of walk away from the six weeks just understanding how God has arranged and organized the Bible. And these six weeks that we're going to go on, um, they're going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching. I would imagine it's going to feel like drinking from a fire hose. So today I chose a passage from Judges chapter 2. And the reason I chose this is because it shows the plight of the nation of Israel throughout its history. They rebel against God, then God sends them punishment, then God, then they cry out, repent, and then God sends them a deliverer, and then they follow God, and then they sin, and then it's a cycle over and over again. So that's why I chose Judges chapter 2. We will begin in verse 10, and we will go to verse 20 to see the cycle of the nation. All that generation under Joshua also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. Why were the peoples around them? We'll talk about that today. And bowed themselves down to them, thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they sinned, God gets mad. Verse 13, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asheroth poles. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Verse 16. So then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to other gods. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, by their complaining and repentance because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would then turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They had abandoned their practices and their stubborn ways. Amen. Thank you to um, the book of Exodus, but we're going to kind of jump a little bit around this morning in several different books, so I hope you will kind of just uh, buckle up and uh, jump in, and hopefully I won't lose everybody today, because basically I'm covering uh, from the book of Exodus to the end of Second Samuel, and that's a time period of over 500 years in about 45 minutes. So um, if you're lost, I'm sorry. I will gladly give you my sermon manuscript. If you want it afterwards, I would love to just communicate that to you. But my purpose uh, for this series is, is related to our mission as a church is to guide all people to become biblical followers or biblical disciples of Christ. What I'm hoping happens is that if you if you just become a Christian or if you've been a Christian for a long time, that you can kind of walk away from this series understanding how God has arranged the truth and the redemption story of mankind. So my plan for the next six weeks, we'll take a, a hiatus right in the middle, but the plan for this series is to spend three weeks in the Old Testament. We spent the last week in the Old Testament just in the book of Genesis. We'll spend this week from Exodus to Second Samuel, really until the divided kingdom. And then next week we will take up from about First Kings 11 to the end of Malachi. So the next two weeks will be a doozy. Um, so we'll spend three weeks in the Old Testament, one week, in something called the 400 years of silence, which is the period of time between the Old Testament and the New. And then we will spend two weeks in the New Testament kind of piecing the puzzle, the redemptive picture of the world all together. And today, specifically, we are unpacking 
another central theme that we find throughout the Old Testament specifically. But as we unpack this theme and as we go from Exodus to 2 Samuel, as we go there, I want to kind of leave us with four timeless principles. Four principles, and if you have your notes, you can see the beginnings of those principles. So today is kind of part two to the Old Testament. So allow me just to review, to kind of understand the puzzle that we have begun to assemble in the picture that we are going for. And a phrase. If someone came up to you and asked you a simple question, uh, let's say they never, they have never been in a church, they've never read their Bible, someone came up to you at work, at the cubicle that you work in, and asked you a simple question, what is the Bible all about? How would you respond? Yeah. Well, Jesus, yeah, and I would, if you could put it in a phrase, right, God's pursuit of mankind's redemption. But why do we need redemption? We need redemption because of sin, that we chose to rebel against God, therefore breaking the relationship that we had with Him. And then the whole Bible, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman will come. There will come a Redeemer. There will come a Messiah. That is predicted in the Garden of Eden. And we see the Bible slowly unfold the redemptive story of God over the course of 1,500 to 2,000 years. Now, uh, an arduous task I had uh, a couple weeks ago is how do you boil down all the events of the Bible to just a handful? That's, think about all of the Sunday school classes that you sat through probably as a child. You have probably at least 25 stories that you remember just off the top of your head. And there are hundreds, perhaps even thousands of stories in the Old Testament. How do you boil them down to ten? I chose these ten. Okay, event number one, which you talked about, event one through four last week with the book of Genesis, and I'll just revisit them real quick. Event number one was, was creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We saw that that is the beginning of mankind. Event number two is the fall of man, the beginning of sin, Genesis chapter 3. Event three was Noah and the flood, the beginning of mankind's rebirth. Event number four was Abraham and the beginning of a nation. Abraham is introduced in Genesis chapter 11. And then we have the three that we will cover today, event, event five, six, and seven, and then I'll just go ahead and fast forward to event eight. Event eight is the divided kingdom under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. And we fail to really see how the, that one event shapes the rest of the Old Testament. Event number nine is the deportation of Judah to Babylon, and event number ten is the return from Babylon to the nation of Israel, which we see in Nehemiah, Ezra, and those types of books. And one of the interesting things is as I was um, unpacking specifically the book of Exodus to the end of 2 Samuel, I saw a theme come up over and over again, and we read it earlier. But there, there seems to be a um, love-hate relationship between God and Israel. Obviously, God's love for them is unconditional, so don't get me wrong there. But He is constantly mad at them. Why? Because there's something that they continuously do on an ongoing basis that God simply just despises. There is something that God hates, and there is something that God loves. To illustrate this, uh, I want you to think about something real quick. I want you to think of F-O-O-D, food. Now, if you're hungry, I apologize for that reference. But I want you to think about food for just a second. What is a food that you love, and what is a food that you hate? Okay, what is a food that you love and what is a food that you hate? So if you're my child, you love chips and cheese and chicken nuggets and french fries. Okay, so 95% of the time, that's where we go out to eat, if anybody with little kids can probably relate to that. But chips and cheese to my daughters means one place and one place only. That means Little Rosie's. We're training them well. And then, and, and so, but then they hate onions. Okay, so then what does a little kid do every time there's an onion? They filter out every onion in every dish that their mother cooks. Okay, and, and their love of Mexican food must be genetic because as I looked back on my childhood, I loved Mexican food. Now, if you grew up in the 90s, I won't ask you to raise your hand on that one, but if you grew up in the 90s, there was one Mexican food place before Rosie's and Little Rosie's, before they existed. There was only one. It was the big yellow hat on the parkway. Anybody ever eat there before? El Palacio. Okay. I loved that place. It was uh, El Grisio is what we called it. It was fattening and delicious. Okay. Okay. 
But I remember as a kid, every birthday that would go by, I would always ask my father if I could eat at El Palacio, and that was the only place that we would ever eat. So I would simply starve myself all day long just so I could eat a little bit more there. But then I hated other food, right? I hated, even to this day, I hate black olives. Can anybody relate to that? That briny, salty, gummy texture thing that infiltrates every food that is in the history of mankind? Now, if you grew up in my household, I, we loved Mexican food, but I hated black olives. Now, um, my, my mother loved black olives, and, I, and it made their way into simply everything it seemed like. So my mom would fix this thing called chicken casserole, and it was just peppered with black olives. So every, the, the 10-year-old boy in me, what does he do? He goes through and he sifts through all of the chicken casserole, filtering out all of the olives, but inevitably what always happens there's always at least one that makes its way into my mouth. And so what do I do? I take it and I just... That is a simple illustration of God. That there is one thing that God absolutely loves. And there is one thing that God absolutely cannot stand. What, what can God not stand at all? There is sim- yeah, there is simply one thing that God just cannot the answer to the question what does God love and what does God hate that the answer that you have to those fill in the blank really shapes every aspect of your life because if you don't think that God hates anything then you can do anything but if you actually realize the nature of God that we see in the book of Exodus all the way through the rest of the Bible in in the Garden of Eden itself if you understand what is the one thing he hates then it really shapes should shape every day of our lives. So if you have your Bible, open to the book of Exodus. And this is going to be a, a, a fire hose today. And if I lose you, I apologize. And we will see what God loves and what God hates throughout the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. That is what we will cover today as in total. And so, really, I would like to begin by covering the book of Exodus itself. And where we pick up in the book of Exodus, where do we leave off? If you remember the story from Genesis, Genesis and Exodus are really linked very tightly. Because in the book of, book of Genesis, we'll just start with Abraham. Abraham is introduced in Genesis chapter 11. And then God promised to make him a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. But there's a problem, right? There's actually two problems, which I shared last week, that Abraham is old and that he has no son. So then Abraham becomes impatient, if you remember that. And so he says, well, God must not be, on, you know, keeping his promises to me. So therefore, I'm going to go uh, with my maidservant Hagar. And then he has a son named Ishmael. But then God still kept his promise. He had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons. He had a son named Jacob and he had a son named Esau. Esau was the older of the two twins. Jacob steals the birthright, steals the blessing in a sense, and then Jacob inherits the nation of God. But if you remember the story, it comes in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. God changes Jacob's name to what? He changes his name to Israel, which is where we get the name Israel for the nation of Israel. And the word Israel, it's interesting, it actually means to wrestle with God. If you ever see a, just a, this is a side note, rabbit here. If you ever see an L at the end of a of an Old Testament name like Daniel, okay, Samuel, that L means God. So it has something to do with God. So Israel, God names Jacob one who wrestles with God. Think about the implications of that name. What happens through the rest of the history of the nation of Israel? They continually wrestle with God throughout their history. Jacob is named Israel, and then Jacob has 12 sons that become the tribes of Israel. And then how do they end up in Egypt? That's kind of where we pick up in the book of Exodus. There's a famine in the land of Canaan where Jacob and his 70 family members live. There's a famine, so they find their way down to Egypt because that is the local nation that has food. So then Joseph, who is now second in command, who happens to be a son of Jacob, gives Jacob's family and his brothers, he forgives them. If you know all those stories, he gives them the land of Goshen. 
And then the nation of Israel populate there for some 400 years. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to set the stage. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read. Exodus chapter 1, this is where we begin. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his own household. And these are the tw- essentially the twelve tribes of Israel. We can talk about this, there's some missing here, but anyways. Verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70, I want you to notice that phrase, 70 people in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers of all that generation. Now, keep in mind that there were 70 people that came down from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And then if you go over to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. I'll let you flip there if you want to. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 I'll just read this one verse, and we are hopping around today. So there's 70 people in Exodus 1, and I want you to notice Exodus 12. Now the sons of Israel journeyed out from Egypt, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. So in a period of over 400 years, the Israelites go from 70 people to 2 million. Now no wonder that... The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has, is a little bit nervous about Israel overthrowing Egypt himself. So in a period of 400 years, they populate to become 2 million people. But I'm going to pause for just a second, and before we unpack the rest of the Exodus, let's just answer the question, why Israel? Why did God create the nation of Israel? Two reasons. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Romans chapter 3. God chose Israel because of his commitment to a man named Abraham. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So he's speaking to the Jewish nation, to the Israelites. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were in more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king. So the reason God blessed the nation of Israel is because of his commitment to a man named Abraham, but also for reason number two is because we see really unfolded throughout the rest of the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3, God chose Israel because of Abraham, but also because God designed them to be a light to the world and to collect the oracles of God, which we benefit today in the Old Testament. So Israel is in modern-day Egypt. They have been in Egypt since the time of Jacob for a period of 400 years. They go from 70 people to 2 million people. Then Pharaoh becomes a bit nervous and then begins to enslave the nation of Israel, which we see in Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. And event number five that we will discuss is Moses and the exodus from Egyptian slavery. This is in verse 6 of chapter 1. Flip back. I'm sorry that if you flip to 12, now you're flipping back to 1. This is, kind of sets the stage for the exodus. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. They became two million people and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Notice verse 8 of chapter 1. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than, uh, than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. So what does Pharaoh see? That there are two million foreigners living in his land, and he is afraid that they will rise up, join forces with other nations that are around the nation of Egypt, and basically wipe out the Egyptians. So Pharaoh, and you can read this, I'm not going to read the entire Old Testament today, because that would be impossible in 45 minutes, but you can see kind of how God is setting the stage. 
the the Israelites are enslaved by Pharaoh in the nation of Egypt and they must break free, which is where we get the exodus from. And this is where Moses comes on the scene. Moses finds himself to be a shepherd, if you're in the land of Midian, I believe off the top of my head. And then he finds in Exodus chapter 3, he finds a burning bush. And then he says, who do you say, who are you, God? Who do I say that you are? And that's where the famous definition of Yahweh comes from. I am who I am. But this man named Moses is really an interesting character. He is one of the most famous men in all of the world. But he is a man of great paradox. Think about the life of Moses. If you know anything about Moses, then you know his life is one of tremendous paradox. Think about it. Paradox number one is that he is a Hebrew raised by who? Raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Paradox number two. Moses was a murderer, yet God appointed him as leader of Israel. Paradox number three is that Moses was an insecure leader. It says in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, Moses comes before God and he has this list of excuses because God has ordained Moses to go and free his people from the nation of Egypt. And then Moses kind of runs through this laundry list of excuses of why he can't do it. And one of the reasons why we see in Exodus chapter 4, it says, I'm not eloquent, I can't speak. So Moses himself says he cannot speak, which is kind of one thing. But then it says in Exodus, excuse me, Acts chapter 7, verse 22, that Moses was a great order, a man of powerful speech. Paradox number four of the life of Moses is that he knew God intimately, yet he sinned against God so much that he could not enter the promised land. Paradox number five of Moses is that he was patient to put up with two million people in the desert for 40 years. And yet, he, so he was so patient, and yet his temper got the best of him in the end. Now, let me just say something. Um, this is Byron's inter- interjection real quick. I could not imagine putting up with two million whiny people in the desert for 40 years. I can't stand three kids, okay? So much less two million people in the desert for 40 years, and he... His temper in the end gets the best of him. There's a great paradox in the life of Moses. And this is kind of the principle that I walked away from, from after I was studying Moses. Is principle number one, if you have your notes. For God to use you in his divine will, focus on being willing and available. Not waiting for yourself to be perfect. Let me say that again. For God to use you, focus on being willing and available, not worrying until you arrive at perfection. So many times we're just like Moses in the desert. Say, well, God, I'll follow you if, or I'll follow you, God, when I have, when I have everything together, or when I conquer this sin, or when I have enough money, or when I have enough boldness, or after I have kids, or after I go to college. I mean, when I was a young man, when I was in middle school, early high school, I said, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you. After I have kids. I'm sure some of us in this room have said that. We won't confess to that. But we all have these excuses that for God, you can't really use me yet because I'm not qualified. Or I, I'm, not, I'm waiting for this time period of my life. Or I'm not smart enough. Or I'm not educated. But Moses has none of those qualities. He's educated in Egypt. But God just sees this man who has every excuse in the book. But at the end of the day, Moses, with all of his excuses, is still willing to follow God. For God to use you, you must be willing and you must be available. You don't have to worry about perfection. Yeah, I look at the life of Moses and we kind of elevate him to this implacable leader. But it reminds me, when I read his story... That if God can use Moses, then God can use any of us. If God can use an insecure, impatient, lacking self-confidence, inarticulate man to do his will, then God can use any of us to do his will. But the question is not, can God use you? The question is, will you let God use you? But then after the Exodus, so Jacob and his family in the 70 
travel from the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, to go around the desert of Sinai into the modern-day Egypt, into a land called Goshen, within the boundaries of Egypt. Then they populate to two million people. And then what happens? Moses leads an exodus of two million people across the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea, and then they walk into a desert. If you know that, there's a little peninsula that makes the tail of the Red Sea. That's a little desert that they basically wandered in for 40 years. But before they wander in the desert for 40 years, what happens? So they exodus, they exit from Egypt. They wander in the desert for a little bit of time. That's where the kind of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus is written. And then what happens in the book of Numbers, chapter 14? They, they send 12 spies into the land, if you know that story. And then 10 of the spies look at the size of the men, the Nephilim, and the, they're gigantic. Okay, And they say that there is no way that we can conquer the land. We should go back to Egypt instead. And then there are only two spies that say, you know, if God can essentially part the Red Sea, if he can lead us out of the land of Egypt, then surely he can lead us to conquest the land of Israel. So then... The nation, if you remember that story, the nation believed the ten and not the two. They believed the ten spies that are skeptical of conquesting the land. And then God gets absolutely angry at the nation of Israel because of their lack of faith, because of their short-sightedness. And then what does God do right then and there? He condemns the entire generation of Israel. All men over the age of 20 years old will have to live in the desert for 40 years so that the entire generation will pass away. So in that 40 years, what happens? That God leads the nation of Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and God wipes them out. What does God hate and what does God love? We've already mentioned this today. What does God hate? God absolutely cannot stand sin. In the way that I hate black olives, he hates sin all the more, okay? His hatred of sin is way more than my hatred of black olives, okay? He absolutely hates sin and he loves righteousness. He loves people that that seek him, that try to live according to his word. This idea of God hating sin should shape the way we live. Um, none of us are perfect. Can I get an amen to that one? They're all, they're, every one of us has sin in our life that we struggle with. And our flesh and the world and the enemy constantly bring us down with temptation from the world. But if there's incessant sin in our life, don't just leave it around. Deal with it. Repent from it. Confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the lesson, lesson for the nation of Israel. That God blesses them, then they sin, then God gives them punishment. And only when God gives them punishment, only when life is falling apart, do they then repent. But friends, let us not wait till life falls apart before we repent from our sin. And that is the lesson that I see in the nation of Israel in the desert. Principle number two is to remember. Remember the kindness of the Lord. They essentially forget what God had done, that he had parted the Red Sea, that God would lead them into the land, and they get fearful. They decide they want to go back to enslavement to Egypt, and God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I freed you, and you still can't believe me. You still can't understand that you serve a mighty and all-powerful God. So then they forget the kindness of God and then they wander in the desert for 40 years. Uh, under event number five, this is where I'm going to kind of take a step aside and just unpack very quickly the books that we uncover in, in this event of Moses and the Exodus. The, the books that are written during this time period is obviously the book of Exodus itself. The book of Exodus records the, the account of their Egyptian slavery and I would say the prologue of their wrestling with God in the desert then the book of Leviticus records the laws of God. It has a bunch of different kind of really weird laws in there. If you read that, you'll probably go to sleep. Um, but it's some really weird laws in the book of Le- Leviticus. And to summarize them, you have the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, you have the dietary laws, you have the moral law. But if you actually look, actually read 
the book of Leviticus, you actually see the very nature of God. His hatred of sin and his love for us and his constant forgiveness and redemption and his desire for his nation to live differently just like he desires us to live differently. The book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Numbers. The reason it's called the book of Numbers is because it has a lot of numbers, statistics about the 12 tribes, but it also kind of records the the main body of stories uh, for Israel's time in the desert. And then you have the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, that word Deuteronomy is literally means the, the second law. The Deuteronomy contains kind of a second Leviticus, and it really has a recording of Moses' sermons on the law. So that's the first five books. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call that the Torah, the Pentateuch. Those first five books were written by Moses. Okay, event five, and then event six, the conquest of the land under Joshua. So after 40 years of them wandering in the desert, and after two million people dying in the desert, that must, if you think about that, that must have been a scene. Just two million people dying in the desert over a period of 40 years. So after 40 years, the nation of Israel finally is permitted to enter the promised land under Moses' successor named Joshua. Moses dies in the desert because of his own impulsiveness. And then a man named Joshua takes the, the helm, so to speak. And then Joshua begins really by crossing the Jordan River into the land. And this comes in Joshua chapter 1, the beginning of the conquest. I'll read this starting in verse 6. I want you to notice what phrase is repeated. Joshua chapter 1 verse 6 says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. He swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. What's the key to their success? Obedience to God. I think it still is today. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you, Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So that begins the book of Joshua. Now, why does he tell them three times in this bed, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous? How are they probably feeling? The last time they saw the promised land, they were told that it was full of giants. They're probably terrified. Because they're going to go into this land that they have no idea what it looks like. All they know is that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And that they will essentially wipe out all of the people of this land. They are, of course, terrified. But what do they do wrong when they conquest the land? They get one thing wrong. They enter the land. They begin to conquest as a nation of Israel. But what do they do? They keep people around. If you know that, I, I, I believe it's the people of age, just off the top of my head, but that there are people that they leave, that God has basically told them to conquest the land, basically kill everybody that is in the promised land, but they decide not to, and they have then people that inhabit the land with them for the rest of their history. Think about the consequence of that decision, even today. The fact that Israel did not wipe out every every other nation from their land. Think about the consequences that that has even to today. Let me just let me go back to David's time period. Many of us do not realize this, but the, the David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel, and it was at that time when David overtook it and made it the city of David. It was a Jebusite city. Why? Because they did not kick out the Jebusites. And think about the consequence of their decision today not wipe it not wipe out people from the promised land, who's there? It's the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So the consequences of the nation of Israel some 3,500 years ago, the consequences of that one sin can still be felt today. 
Principle number three is this, that I see in the conquest of the land is this, that partial obedience is complete disobedience. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. But is that true? You know, we like to go to the Lord. We feel like the Lord kind of tells us to do something, and sometimes we kind of go halfway when we either confess our sin but don't really repent and turn, or we don't really follow God fully. God, I want to serve you in ministry, but I don't really want to drive to Texas Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Is that true? Let me ask the parents in the room. Uh, let's say you ask your 12-year-old to go clean up their room. No, let's say 8-year-old, okay? Um, my 5-year-old still hasn't gotten that memo quite yet. I don't know if she's old enough or I'm just not mean enough or something. I don't know. But the cleaning the room thing to my 5-year-old just doesn't work out too well. So let's say uh, you tell your 10-year-old to go clean their room. And let's say... They pick up all of their clothes and put it in the hamper, but they leave all their toys out. That is called partial obedience. Amen? So now, as a parent, what do you do when you walk into the room? You get aggravated. Why? Because they did not fully obey you. Full obedience is actually doing what you tell them to do. That's the nation of Israel with God. They conquest the land, but they do not completely eradicate the land of foreigners. Therefore, the consequence of their one indecision has consequences some 3,500 years later. So after the, after the conquest of land, you have Moses and then Joshua, the book of Joshua. And then you have a period of the nation of Israel called the Judges. So the period of the Judges is a time of a period about 400 years in this time period, Israel becomes a theocracy. Essentially, they have no president and they have no king, that God is their king, that God is their ruler. And the government essentially is run by the priests that exercise sacrifices for sin, who communicate the law of God to the nation of Israel, that exercise justice. But then the age-old problem of sin creeps up again in Judges chapter 2, which we read earlier. I'll just reread some of it again. Verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And then they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now let me, that would be so maddening if I was God. That I delivered you, I gave you the promised land, I gave you a land flowing with milk and honey. But you were so quick to turn aside to other gods when I do not give you what you want. Don't we do the same, though? Then when we have an expectation of God for the way our life should turn out, that when it doesn't turn out that way, what do we typically do? We run to the Baals and Asheroth poles. We run to the things that make us satisfied. Verse 14, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for the evil. But then verse 16, God saw their plight, then God raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered him. In the book of Judges, you see this constant cycle over a period of 400 years. That God blesses them, then they turn to the other gods, and then God delivers them through a judge. Some of the judges that are famous is the judge of Samson, the judge of Deborah, the judge of Gideon, to name a few. There are 12 in total. And the judges that deliver the nation of Israel... So that's kind of where we will stop. And event number six is the conquest of the land of Joshua. And then you have the period of the judges over a period of 400 years. So real quickly, on the back of your note sheet, there's a summary of what I'm about to describe. But the book of Joshua records Israel's conquest of the land. The book of Judges records 400 years of Israel's sin and God's deliverance through 12 different judges. And then during this period of the Joshua Judges time frame, the book of Ruth is written. And now if you've never read the book of Ruth, it is a wonderful book. It is a book of romance, quite literally. But it's also a book of complete and total redemption. If you know that story, it's written to, during the period of the Judges. And Ruth is traveling with her mother-in-law named Naomi. And Ruth has lost her husband, Ruth and Orpah. Is, are the two daughter-in-law of Naomi. Just an FYI, to put a feather in your cap, that's where the name Oprah came from. Just her mom misspelled it. That is a true story. So, okay, so <laughs> Oprah's mom took the name Orpah from the Old Testament and misspelled it. That is true. Okay, at least I believe it is. Okay, so then you have Orpah and then you have Ruth. 
they both lose their husbands, which was Naomi's sons, and her sons were named Malon and Kilion, which means weak and sickly. That's, that's tough to be named. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is my son weak, and this is my son sickly. Okay. Um, that's what it says. So then the book of Ruth. So then Ruth travels. She's a Moabite woman. She travels to Israel with her Jewish mother named Naomi. And she is destitute. She has no sons. She has no husband. And God places upon her path a man named Boaz, who is her kinsman redeemer, who is essentially her Messiah in a sense, the foreshadowing the Messiah that comes through the line of Ruth and Boaz to come. So that happens during the period of Judges, the book of Ruth was written. So you have event number five. I told you it was going to be a fire hose today. Uh, event number five is Moses and the Exodus. Event number six is the conquest of the land. And event number seven is the coronation of the kings of Israel. The coronation of the kings of Israel. So Israel is ruled over 400 years by 12 different judges that come and deliver them. Uh, the justice and sacrificial system is ruled by the priests. And that God is essentially their king. And then all of a sudden the, the nation of Israel decides they don't want God as their king anymore. They don't want to live in a theocracy. They want to live under a dictatorship, a monarchy. So then they require of God in 1 Samuel chapter 8 to give them a king. This is where it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I'm actually going to read a bit more than what I planned originally to kind of give you the context of what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says this, picking up in verse 4. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was kind of the ruler at the time of Ramah, And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They want to be like everybody else. But they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be different. Verse 6, But the thing was displeasing in the sight of the Lord when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day. What a painful statement that God has to make. Verse 8. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so that they are doing to you also. So then listen to their voice. Give them what they want. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and he will place them for himself in chariots and among his horsemen. And he will run before the chariots and he will take your daughters and make them perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. What is he saying? You have it good right now as me as the king, but now as soon as you have this human king who they appoint to be Saul, he will tax you to death. It's quite, in modern day terms, he will tax you to oblivion. He will take your sons to be soldiers. He will take your daughters to be his perfumers. He will take your money, your produce, your possessions for his to fuel his army but they still decide they want the king and God appoints Saul why does God appoint Saul as the first king you would think that God would appoint a better first king than Saul to rule as the first king but really God seems to appoint Saul not for his moral and ethical qualities but for his physical qualities it says that Saul was handsome was ahead above all everyone else in the land and they become impressed with the appearances of other people and not with the qualities that of morality and integrity and Samuel struggles with that same thing let me just say something really quick and this is and then I'll get to my fourth uh, principle we oftentimes look at somebody's external health and appearance to judge their internal quality. Let us value not just our own external experience, appearance, but let us value this and how we really walk with the Lord. Principle number four is this, is be careful what you pray for, you might just get it. Be careful what you ask God for. You might just get it. They ask for a king, and Samuel says, you're asking for it, but I'm warning you, he's going to tax you to oblivion, and they still desire it. And this one decision, 
You know, what I love about the Old Testament is we see the consequences come from Genesis and Exodus, and even into the book of 1 Samuel, we see the consequences of their sin and how it plays, and how it affects even to modern day, that their one decision to appoint a king named Saul still affects them even to the end of the nation in deportation. Event number seven is the coronation of the kings of Israel. Saul is first, if you know that. And then David is appointed next. And then David's son named Solomon, if you know that. And then from Solomon, Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And under Rehoboam, there happens to be a split, a civil war. And the northern ten tribes go under Jeroboam. And the southern two under Judah go to Rehoboam. The coronation of kings of Israel, under this event where a lot of books written... The book of 1 Samuel records Saul's reign and, Saul's, and Samuel's early life. The book of 2 Samuel records David's reign and David's personal turmoil. But for the rest of our time, I'm going to really talk about the middle of the Bible. Um, if you were to take your Bible and you were to flip pages past 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you pass Ezra, you pass Nehemiah, you pass Esther, and then you come to a book named Job, Right in the middle of our Bible, we have a section of poetry. And I believe God has very intentionally placed that poetry for us even today. I'm going to talk about those five books right in the middle. The book of Job, what is it centered on? The book of Job is centered on the idea of suffering. Let me, let me just ask you, and I would like you to raise your hand for this. Um, how many of you have ever suffered? God has given us in the middle of the Bible an entire book devoted to suffering. We see the narrative of Job in chapter 1 and 2. We see the narrative ending in chapter 42. And then right in the middle, you have this gigantic section of poetry. As Job processes the loss of his possessions and the loss of his children. And really the only person that Job has left at the end of the events in chapter 2 is his wife. And what does his wife say to him? Curse God and die. So Job has nothing, and then he's sitting there, and then God allows Satan to attack Job's body, and it says that Job shaved off, boils off of his skin with broken pieces of clay. And it says that his, his three friends that he processes the rest of the book with saw his pain and sat there silently for seven days. And in the middle of Job, we see poetry from his life as he just talks to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And then we come to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a book of poetry, but it's also a book of songs. If you could summarize the book of Psalms, it is the mystery of life with God. The mystery of life with God. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God seem absent at times? Why does God seem to reward the wicked and not the righteous? The vast majority of the book of Psalms was written by David, but some by Solomon, and one by Moses in Psalm chapter 90. And let me just speak personally real quick. The Psalms, the book of Psalms, are my absolute lifeblood. I, um, I love the Psalms. Because they don't speak to hear, they speak to hear. They speak to a life walking with the Lord and the mystery that it is. Psalm 22, at times I felt this exact way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Psalms. It is really a book devoted to walking with the Lord. It describes the mystery of that life. The book of Proverbs is the wisdom of God. It was, the vast majority was written by Solomon, it explores many different things, how to handle your money, how to avoid the traps of sexual sin, how to understand the importance of hard work. The book of Ecclesiastes is next. It is the book of the meaning of life. If you've ever wondered the meaning of life, then you should read the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, forewarning, the book of Ecclesiastes is notoriously pessimistic. It is a bit depressing, but it has one conclusion essentially in the end that the meaning of life can only be found by God himself, by our own creator. That if we try to find meaning in the creation of the world, then it will all be vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
Then we come to the book of Song of Songs, or some say the Song of Solomon, and that is a manual for a happy marriage. A manual for a happy marriage. The whole book is devoted to a relationship between a man and his wife. So you have, I just want to pause before we do the application section. I want to pause, I want you to think about something real quick. In the middle of your Bible, right smack in the middle, God gives you a book to talk about suffering, a book that talks about walking with God, a book of wisdom, a book of the meaning of life, and a book of how to have a healthy marriage. How many of you have wondered those exact five things? Every one of us. I certainly have. But what an amazing God that he would give us instructions right in the middle of the Bible for us on how to live in each of those situations that we all face. I stand more convinced today than ever that the Bible is God's word. It is truth, whether it is hard to believe or not. It is God's truth, and he has given it to us so that we could live a righteous and holy life. So that is part two of the Old Testament. I told you it was going to be a bit TMI. That means too much information. And then if you, I did not include this on the notes themselves, um, but I, I just kind of want, I'm going to reread the principles that we unfolded throughout the Old Testament, and then I just basically want you to choose one to apply to your life. Principle number one, for God to use you, you must be willing and available, not perfect. Some of you here today probably feel like God wants to use you for something, but then you're just like Moses, you have 18 reasons why you can't follow the Lord. If that is you today... Then you should apply principle number one. Okay, Lord, okay, what, what are my excuses? Here they are. I'll follow you wherever. Principle number two is this. Remember the kindness of the Lord. Friends, listen, man. We, uh, when God does something great for us, what do we typically do? Oh, that's great. Wonderful. I'll praise Jesus. And then we, the next day, forget about it. That's got to be so nauseating to the Lord. Remember the kindness of the Lord. Remember partial obedience is complete disobedience. And principle number four is be careful what you pray for. You might just get it. I'm going to close with one of my favorite four verses in all of the Bible that really summarizes the truth of God's word. This is Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Uh, what a... Just your word is amazing and how you have arranged it, not just to unfold your redemptive plan through the nation of Israel to all of us who have now been included into to the fold that, that would believe in you. But Lord, how you would give us uh, instructions on how to handle suffering and how to be wise in situations of life and how to walk with you and how to have a healthy marriage and how to find the meaning of life. Lord, um, I just pray that we would be students of your word. And Lord, not just students that learn more, but that would apply it and really see how to walk with you. Lord, I pray for those this morning that do not have a relationship with you, that they would believe in your son, that they would place and trust in you as their savior. Lord, thank you for those that are here. Thank you for those that are tuning in online. And Lord, I pray for protection in this crazy time of the world that is ongoing a year and a half later. And Lord, but we still know that you are in control of all things. And we love you, we serve you, and we proclaim your word boldly and we live for you. Lift us up in Jesus' name. Amen.